All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, those of you who experienced back to school this past week, I uh, hope the tra transition wasn't too jarring for you all. <laughs> You're finding your way back into that school rhythm again. Um, in our family, this is actually the first time, I think in a decade, over a decade, where we only have to do one drop off and pick up. Yeah. Yeah, our oldest son's in college now. Our daughter can now drive herself to school. So it's a whole new world. It's a whole new world. Um, before we jump in, I want to give you all a moment to reflect on, on this question here. So when was a time that you were included, right? And when that felt you made, that, you know, made you feel belonging, right? When was a time that you were included in something? Could be a time when you were growing up. Could be something more recent. Um, but I'll give you a moment to reflect on that. Um, what's an experience when you were included? And if you're willing, go ahead and share with someone next to you. Maybe this could be the moment where you're included. <laughs> so run with that. All right, I'll give you a moment. All right. So when was a time or an experience when you felt included? Does anybody want to offer something? Jack? All right, you got invited to your school's Discord server, which I think I, I'm barely young enough to understand that. Um, yeah. Anyone else? Theater, like being part of a theater group? Mm, starting a new job, that's key. Being included in the text thread. Oh, that's next level. Well done, well done. Anyone else? Here at Vox. Thank you. That's kind of you. So a couple of years ago, um, a friend of ours got us a reservation at this restaurant here in town um, that was really difficult to get at the time. Um, and she had connections there, so we were really grateful to be included in her network. Uh, we were really excited about this because Rachel and I were actually celebrating our anniversary for this dinner. And so we showed up, uh, and the hostess you know, asked us if we had a reservation, and we said it should be under Rachel. She takes a moment, looks at the screen, looks up and down. Um, says, what time is it for? We're like, it's for now. <laughs> and she tells us she doesn't see anything. We tell her, reservation was definitely made, right? And she looks again, and this time, uh, she said, well, there's a reservation for a Rachel that was like two hours ago and didn't show up. And we're like, oh, that must be us, right? You probably just got the time wrong. And so she said not to worry, the restaurant was completely full but they would work to get us seated. And so they ended up finding an extra table, pulled it up. We had an amazing dinner. And afterwards, we sent a text to our friend thanking her for making the reservation. She was asking us, oh, which entrees did you enjoy? Did you like the, the dessert that I had ordered for you? And after we get going back and forth, we begin to realize we're not talking about the same restaurant. <laughs> Apparently, we had showed up to a completely different place. 
And so, of course, they didn't have my reservation because it was the wrong place. Uh, but still, they went out of their way to include us in their dining experience, made us felt like we belonged there. Uh, also, we never did tell them we actually didn't have a reservation. But I would imagine for us, right, as a community here at Vox, um, that people may or may not have the same experience. Um, and just the hope is, you know, for people to experience a sense of welcome and belonging when they show up. And I acknowledge that sometimes that isn't the experience for people who come. And it can be a challenge for us to find the right balance between needing safety and care for those in our community and also making space for others to join who are also looking for belonging. And so what it, would it mean for us to extend the table, right? Make more space for those who are looking for belonging. You know, in his teachings, Jesus uses the image of a dinner, of a banquet, of making room for all the guests. He uses that image quite a bit. And it's especially to make space for the ones who have been marginalized. And so the question I want to explore this morning Right, is how are we limiting our desire or our ability to extend the table? Because if we're truly to be inclusive and loving the way Jesus modeled for us, what would it look like for us to create more space at the table, both in our lives, in our community here at Vox? And in our lectionary text for this morning, we'll read about an encounter that Jesus has, which actually paints him in a pretty negative light, and as we unpack his experience, hopefully we can explore what our invitation is in creating belonging for those we might find challenging or difficult to engage with. And so we start in verse 10. Then he called the crowd to him and said to them, listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then the disciples approached and said to him, do you, not know, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? And so here Jesus, you know, he's teaching to the crowd, he's reframing what it means to belong. Right? Being embedded in Hebrew culture, their purity codes, their purity laws, they offered a strict definition of what it meant to be in or out. That's what determined whether or not you were welcome to be in community, or if you needed to be left on the margins. And so Jesus was trying to call out the religious leaders for their fundamentalism and how they created a structure of exclusion based solely on external behaviors, right? Like what you ate. Instead, Jesus' life and teachings reframed belonging and centered it around mercy and grace. And that's the reason the religious leaders were so upset because they had always been the gatekeepers. They had created a system that was really beneficial for them, and it continued to feed their bias and the community's bias against those that they felt didn't belong. And so I think what Jesus is getting at here goes beyond just food. Right? There are many other things that go inside of us that feed us uh, and feed who we are, who we become, right? the messaging that we hear, the cultural values that we see modeled, the social media views, like all of that becomes internalized in our system. And what comes out of us is a reflection and embodiment of our internal biases. And so for us, 
as we consider what it looks like to extend the table, we're invited to transcend our bias, right? To make space for difference, to seek understanding, to hold tension and consider nuance in how we perceive others and their belonging. And I acknowledge, you know, this is right up my alley as an Enneagram 9, right? Like that's my sweet spot as a peacemaker to include, to see all sides. Uh, but peacemakers also have their shadow side, uh, which I'll address later in my homily. Um, but Mazarin uh, Banaji, she's a social psychologist who taught at Harvard. She wrote this book called Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People. Some of you might be familiar with her work around implicit bias. And she talks about how our mind is a difference-seeking machine. That our minds naturally look for difference in others in order to help us navigate the world around us. And so while noticing differences can help us survive in the world, usually by avoiding those differences, that also ends up creating blind spots and biases because we end up filling in the gaps of what we don't really know. So she gives this example of a riddle that she put online and that 80% couldn't answer correctly. And some of you might have heard this before, but the riddle goes like this. A father and his son were in a car accident, and the father dies at the scene. The boys rush to the hospital, and at the hospital, the operating surgeon looks at the boy and says, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. And how is this possible if the father just died? And so the first time I heard this, I remember my answer was that the son, the, you know, the son must have been adopted, right? And so the surgeon is actually the boy's biological father, which is not the right answer. The answer is that the surgeon was the boy's mother. And so her point is that even though we're all aware of the reality that there are female surgeons, unless you're enlightened Ken, our minds are still influenced by our culture, right? Where we tend to associate surgeon with the man. And it takes work to uncover those biases. And so one of the values that drives her research and how to move people through their implicit bias is the value of understanding, which she says is a more scientific word for compassion or empathy. And part of develop, developing understanding can start with simply exposing your mind to things and people that you don't know much about. And so she gives a specific practice of cycling through a series of a thousand pictures of people from very different backgrounds on her computer screensaver. And so maybe seeing a visual of a farmer from Iowa might make her stop and consider how she might you know, understand their context and experience that's completely different from hers. And when I think about this community, right, empathy is one of our values that I hope we continue to live into, to truly hold space for those who are different from us. Because what I've been sensing the last few years, as we've been, you know, we've become more grounded and clear in who we are as a community, advocating for vulnerable populations. There's also a polarized and politicized layer that exists around us in our world. And there's a danger to trade in a previous form of fundamentalism for a different kind of fundamentalism. 
And so I've met people who walk through these doors on a Sunday and, you know, they ask me whether they're going to be safe here. Or is this a place for them if they hold a certain belief? And I'll admit that there can be bias based on where they're coming from or what previous church they were a part of. And yet I also realize that we need to be able to hold space and tension for healthy difference in order to grow in our understanding of others. The caveat is that we will always prioritize the safety of marginalized individuals, especially if someone's difference is creating intentional harm. And so for us, what might a practice of understanding look like for us this week? Maybe it's seeking understanding of certain life experiences that we haven't been through, or relational trauma that we don't have context for. Maybe it's seeking understanding of cultural backgrounds and upbringings that we're not familiar with. Maybe it's seeking understanding of what it's like to be a different ethnicity or gender or even non-binary in the workplace. And just through the act of practicing understanding, we are extending the table, making space to consider nuance instead of jumping straight towards exclusion. And then we continue in verse 22. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she keeps shouting at us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And so there's really no way to get around the fact that Jesus looks like a complete jerk in this interaction. And it's about to get worse. And what makes this even more disturbing is that he just finished calling out the religious leaders for their hypocrisy and fundamentalism. They were the ones who based others' worth on external behaviors and categories. And yet Jesus seems to be doing the very thing he was speaking against. He ignores this woman, tells her she's not part of the right demographic for him to help, which seems so out of character for who Jesus is. There have been a couple of interpretation about what's happening here. The one I grew up with, where the priority was to never paint Jesus in a negative light, was that this was just a test. Jesus wasn't really ignoring her. He was pushing her away, calling her names, because he wanted to test her faith. He was being extremely harsh in order to reflect back to the disciples what their bias looked like, right? So that's the whole, it's just a test explanation. But the other interpretation invites us to sit in the uncomfortable tension that Jesus, as a fully embodied human being, was actually a product of his cultural upbringing and context. There was a lot of bad history and conflict between these two cultures, between those living in Tyre and Sidon and those living in Israel. And so maybe Jesus did find it inconvenient and perhaps annoying to interact with this woman who represented a difficult and challenging culture for him. And yet this woman insists on asking for mercy from Jesus. And so for us, as we consider what it looks like to extend the table, 
we're invited to prioritize mercy over convenience. And convenience can take many different forms, right? It can be time, energy, our internal bias, not wanting to do the work to cross cultural boundaries. But choosing to prioritize our convenience creates a huge barrier in extending the table. You know, I've shared recently, but my pastoral role had, here at Vox is shifting to oversee partnerships and to explore what it means for our community to be good neighbors here in East Austin, here in our city at large. And so I've been spending time and energy connecting with and learning uh, more about what's already happening in our city. Claire Kinder, uh, who's uh, on our navigation team, she'll be co-leading this new partnerships team with me. But last week she and I met with Mark uh, Hilbelink, who's the pastor of Sunrise Community Church down in South Austin. Uh, right off 71 in Menchaca. And he shared the journey of how their small church has now become one of the largest service providers for the unhoused here in Austin. He mentioned that prior to the pandemic, 80% of the unhoused population in Austin camped in the downtown area. And then after the pandemic, it flipped. And now 80% of the unhoused population actually camp outside of downtown. And a large number have shifted to where their church is located because the 71 overpass is an ideal location for them to camp. And so he shared how initially it was really inconvenient for them. I mean, it became a drain on time and energy trying to manage and keep their property safe and making a lot of calls to the cops. Most of his church community didn't have prior proximity or interaction with the unhoused community. And so a lot of internal bias was surfacing in those interactions. But the reality was that their physical location wasn't changing. And so it came to a point where they made a decision to actually start caring for the unhoused, to prioritize mercy over convenience. And so they pivoted and reimagined what their church building could become, right? And what types of services they might be able to offer the unhoused. And so their building became a day center to resource the unhoused, where they could access mail, bathrooms, portable showers, you know, daily lunches. They began to staff accordingly with social and medical workers to where they could manage medications, conduct assessments for housing applications. Last year, they conducted over 3,000 assessments, which is more than what all the other agencies in Travis County did combined. And so full disclaimer, which he emphasized many times, is that not every church needs to be doing this. They don't need to start a day center. He shared that when they made this pivot to prioritize serving the unhoused, half of their church members left. And so in fact, he highly recommends not for churches to do this. <laughs> and at the same time, what does our participation look like? Right, in caring for an underserved or neglected population, which can be inconvenient and come with a cost. And for us, maybe a practice we can try this next month is just to look for practical outlets, right, where we can prioritize mercy over convenience and not ignore a request for help. And I acknowledge that some of us are in a season that is already overwhelming, and this is not meant to add guilt or shame onto your plate, but I trust that each of us has the ability to discern for ourselves 
when we can step into something that's sustainable and meaningful, and when we're just ignoring an opportunity for the sake of convenience. You know, one of our Vox members, uh, Lindsey Gray, she just shared an opportunity with me um, through Vecina, which is an immigration justice advocacy organization that she runs. And one of her current projects is supporting Afghan refugees here in Austin. And a couple of years ago, when the Taliban regained control of Afghanistan, tens of thousands of Afghans uh, arrived in the States without permanent legal status. And so they were given a two-year temporary parole status. And so many of them now, it's been two years, they need help to apply for re-parole in order to continue living and working here. And so they'll be hosting clinics during the last week of August. And you can find more details on our sign-ups page on our website if you want to volunteer. But there's also Inside Books Project that's right here in our building. Right? They prioritize the incarcerated, who are another mostly forgotten population. But how might, me, how, how might we practice mercy with those who tend to be ignored or underserved? And so the Canaanite woman shouted toward Jesus, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, Help me. And then we close in verse 23. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that moment. And so the persistence of this woman, right, is on full display here. Even when Jesus uses a derogatory label for her. It's pretty clear that Jesus and the disciples are attempting to silence her by either physically removing her or verbally assaulting her until she leaves. Their attempts get progressively worse and worse, right? It starts just with the silent treatment, not acknowledging her presence, then asking her to leave, then using language that's meant to exclude, and then throwing out really shame, shaming language. There was no intention to make space for this woman at the table. They just wanted to be done with this conflict, to restore a sense of quiet and of peace, which isn't real peace, because it would have come at the expense of someone with no power or voice. It's something that peace educator Johann Kalting calls negative peace. And so for us, as we consider what it looks like to extend the table, we're invited to disrupt the negative peace that we intentionally or unintentionally create because it ends up being a barrier to healing and restoration. What are the ways that we've contributed to negative peace? When we remain silent or when we attempt to silence others? As I mentioned earlier, this is the shadow side of the Enneagram 9. Right? As a peacemaker, my goal and priority is to maintain peace both externally and internally. And sometimes I will do that at any cost, just for the sake of quiet 
and calm, but that's not true peace. Uh, there's a Japanese writer and nonviolent activist named Kazuhaga who wrote a book called Healing Resistance. And his philosophy and practice of nonviolence is influenced and based on Dr. Martin Luther King's practice. And one of the stories um, that Kazu tells that helps capture what negative peace looks like for him was around the experience of authoring Lucy back in 1956, when she became the first black student to attend classes at the University of Alabama. And on that first day she arrived, riots broke out on the campus. The KKK showed up. A mob surrounded the car that she was traveling in. And so the university chose to suspend her and eventually expelled her from school because they said her presence was a threat to campus safety. The next day, the local paper ran a headline that said, things are quiet in Tuscaloosa today. There is peace on the campus of the University of Alabama. But what kind of peace, right? And for who? At what cost? And in response to this incident, Dr. King gave a sermon that he called, when peace becomes obnoxious. And he referred to this experience as negative peace, right? A peace that has the absence of tension, but comes at the expense of justice. This is how Kazuhaga reflects on negative peace. He says, we justify these ways of trying to achieve peace, so we go to war to try to create peace. We incarcerate people to try to create peace. We lock up all the protesters to try to create peace. And that's not a path to creating real peace. At best, what it creates is negative peace. It's very temporary and surface level by repressing the real issues that need to be brought to the surface. Negative peace is prevalent in many of our relationships, homes, workplaces, faith communities, and institutions. This is often the type of negative peace created and maintained by ubiquitous, unspoken understanding that surfacing conflict is not welcome. And that stings for me to hear because it hits home, right? There's so much truth there. And I think that's where we have to honestly reflect in our own lives, in our community, Right? How might we be stifling healthy conflict because we're more interested in creating our own echo chamber where everyone needs to hold the same political or religious or theological perspectives? But instead, when there is disagreement or conflict, maybe our posture should not default to silencing or excluding, which creates negative peace, but how might we hold the tension make space at the table in our collective work towards justice and healing. And so as we close, my hope for us, Vox, is that as we continue to gather as a community, that we would look around and take note of what people, whose voices are still missing. And not just in this room, but what does our community look like when we're spread throughout the city during the week? How might we be practicing mercy, disrupting negative peace in ways that keep extending the table for others to belong 
and to be included in the beloved community. And so let me close with this prayer. God who created us in your image, where each one of us contain a different reflection of you, may we transcend the selfish categories that we have created and fully see the image of God in each other. Jesus, who lived in a body like ours, who carried the same bias and inconvenience that we experience, may we grow and change the same way he did when he fully saw the woman beyond her categories and culture. And spirit, who instills calm and peace and draws us towards unity and companionship, may we extend the table and include, include, and include. We ask all this in the inclusiveness of God, our creator, the mercy of Christ, and the peace of the Spirit. Amen.